Welcome to the LPP Podcast. LPP is the Life Process Program, an online addiction counseling program which, happily, is an alternative to 12-step programs. We help people with addictions to drugs and alcohol, but we also work with people with a whole range of other potentially addictive involvements like sex, pornography, food, shopping, relationships, gambling, and technology. There is both a self-help version of the program and there's a coach-led version. Both are affordable. And if you can't commit to or you don't want to commit to paying money for something, we also have free resources at our website, lifeprocessprogram.com, which will help you find your way through addiction or that can help you better understand how to help a loved one who may be struggling with addiction. Again, this can all be found at our website, lifeprocessprogram.com. At the website, beyond just the program itself, you'll find blogs, answers to frequently asked questions, videos, podcasts, links to information that we highly recommend ourselves. And one more time, you can find this at lifeprocessprogram.com. You can also engage with us on social media, whether that's Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. Links to all of those in the show notes. Today, we're turning the tables. I'm actually being interviewed. I was interviewed by psychologist and author Michael Edelstein on his show, REBT Advocates. Dr. Edelstein used to work with a man named Albert Ellis. Albert Ellis is sort of a legendary psychologist. He is one of the, if not the, founder of cognitive therapies, beginning with a style of therapy that he created called Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, or REBT. Pulling from the experience and education that he absorbed through his work with Albert Ellis, Michael Edelstein wrote the book Three Minute Therapy, which, as the title suggests, is a book full of three-minute REBT techniques and exercises that people can use to demystify some of their yet-solved problems. Now, Dr. Edelstein hosts a podcast called REBT Advocates, and I was fortunate enough to appear on the show to talk about the book that I wrote fairly recently with Dr. Stanton Peel, which is called Outgrowing Addiction with Common Sense Instead of Disease Therapy. On this episode, I talked about what it means to outgrow addiction, which is a phenomenon known more clinically as natural recovery or spontaneous remission. This process of outgrowing addiction is something that we at the Life Process Program help to nurture by helping people understand that beating addiction is the result of living a mature and purposeful and meaningful life, an optimistic life that brings them joy. And at the Life Process Program, we also help people to get on track to achieving this kind of a life balance. So I hope you'll enjoy today's interview between me and Michael Edelstein and his co-host, Tommy Bateman. I've shared a link to the YouTube version of the interview in the show notes if you'd like to see the video. And I've also shared an article about natural recovery that we recently published at the LPP website. Without further ado, hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome everybody to this 76th episode of the REBT Advocates with me, Tommy Bateman, and the wonderful and glorious and amazing Dr. Michael R. Edelstein of 3MinuteTherapy.com. And that guy right there that you're seeing on the screen is Zach Rhodes. He is co-author of the book Outgrowing Addiction. You can find his book at OutgrowingAddiction.com. Please tell us more about it. Zach? Yes, let me actually start by talking about Stanton Peel. In 1975, he wrote a book called Love and Addiction. And you might be familiar with that. He knew you. And so anyway, he wrote, in, in that book, he pretty much presaged everything that, we, that is sensible in, in, by my way of thinking about the addiction field today in terms of not seeing addiction as something that is uh, simply a moral failing 
not seeing addiction as something that's completely biomedical. And from that framework, I have definitely stood on his shoulders when we wrote this book together. We wrote a book about what addiction is and what it isn't. And uh, my work is specifically with families and children. And I've done that for a long time without addiction on my mind ever. And the common sense approaches that I use with families and helping kids mature and develop are the same common sense approaches. You might even call them folk psychological approaches that Stanton uses with adults with respect to getting over addictions. We met because I host a podcast called The Social Exchange, which used to be a podcast about children, families, and development. And when I spoke with him, we talked about addiction. And when we realized that our models, mine with respect to development, kids, families, his with respect to adults and their development and maturity and addiction, uh, we realized we were, we were all saying the same thing. So we wrote a book to combine the two concepts. That was, that's being potted, but I think that gives a, a fairly okay overview. Yeah. yeah and how, how are you and Stanton defining addiction? Addiction is a relationship that people form with an activity or involvement or a thing, a substance, as it were. Uh, we certainly don't, we don't limit it to uh, simply talking about drugs. And it's something that people do to, you know, they get it because they feel either relief from something or they feel some, uh, some elation, some, some re they, they get rewards from this activity, from this relationship that they couldn't generate in other areas of their lives, or at least they thought they couldn't generate. And they, uh, they latch onto this thing and they, for whatever reason, do not desist despite the negative consequences that it brings. So that's our broad definition of addiction. The most important thing that we that, that I just want people to know is that when we talk about addiction, we're never talking about only drugs unless that's that's brought to the forefront of the conversation. So addiction for us is to can be to anything, and it's not it's not something that's biomedical, and it's not something that is um, that can be reduced to some sort of a, a neuro image. It's something that we have to understand in the warp and woof of social events in life. Yeah, it's funny. I actually had a, a, a biologist, a PhD biologist, uh, do, uh, do a lecture on the biology of addiction. And one of the things she said at the beginning, this is a disease. If you look at a cell of, of a person that's going through addiction, you could see the, um, the protein receptors, they're damaged and gone. But in the end, she kind of proved it wasn't a disease because if you simply abstain from it, the protein receptors come back. I mean, so it's much, much more, as you just said, Zach, more than just a biological problem. Of course, biology is affected by the use of drugs. But there's a moral component. There's a biological component. There's a, there's a, uh, a skilled and developmental component. So I'm glad you're not taking this overly simplistic approach to the problem. And a lot of the time, when I was reading your book, I went, oh, you mentioned Angela Duckworth. Okay, I brought that into a lot of my essay groups. Awesome. Positive psychology. Oh, sure. skill building. Yeah, so wonderful. Comment on that, if you, if you will. Yeah, well, uh, in, in, on one hand, nobody ever gets diagnosed with something through a brain scan. We could start there. And when somebody comes to a clinician, as you, I'm sure both are well aware, I'm, not, I'm preaching to the choir, but what doesn't happen is that the clinician uh, looks at you and, and gives you some sort of a diagnosis, which now you say, oh, that's what I am. You, people come to a clinician or a therapist or a psychiatrist or because they have a set of things that are going on in their lives and uh, maybe negative events or perceived negative events that are happening. And that clinician says, yes, well, this, we could talk about that in this framework, and maybe they'll give them a diagnosis. Um, so nothing ever starts from a brain scan. Nothing ever starts from a clinician casting a spell upon a person saying that you are now diseased with this. Not in a practical sense, not in something that's a, 
a meaningful involvement with a therapist. There's no sidestepping the fact that people have to engage with their lives. So you can have any sort of therapy, any sort of drug, any sort of intervention. There's no getting away from the fact that there just is no magical intervention. It's um, addiction is something that we experience and, and it's a life experience and it has to be contended with in the framework of the rest of a person's life. Now, is, uh, is that what you mean when you say in your book, Zach, that addiction involves the whole person, not just the brain? Sure. I mean, everything, of course, involves the brain. That's so, it, it, that's so tautological. And yes, that is what I mean when I say addiction happens to a human being. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we are focused on sort of the ideology and, and the medical frameworks that come with the term addiction that we forget that we're talking about human beings. Right. Yeah. And I think uh, the key distinction between a disease and an addiction is that if you have a disease, say the flu or cancer, you can't stop having the disease by a change of behavior. Yeah. With addiction, if you're addicted to alcohol, you can choose to stop drinking and you're no longer addicted. Uh, so there's a qualitative universe of difference between those two things. Yeah, I, I mean, you can stop drinking, and by our definition, and maybe this gets a, a, a little less in the, the weeds a little bit, but take the object of a person's addiction, let's say, away, and it doesn't mean that the their overall experience, which we're calling addictive, also goes away. But as you say, addiction is something that involves a series of choices. Choice isn't all or nothing, so people hate that. People hate to be told that, you know, it almost sounds like I'm saying people choose addiction, but we're not saying that. We don't think people choose destruction in their lives. We think people make choices and those choices lead to one thing or another. And that leads to the experience. And those, those experiences can be mitigated by making another series of choices away from it. If only people are able to adhere to a certain value system and, and skill system and have enough resources to, to make those choices. Yeah. Well, I would give you a little pushback on that, Zach. I think people choose addiction in the sense that people choose to learn another language. I can choose to speak Italian, but not this moment, but by studying Italian, practicing Italian, I'm choosing to speak Italian. And similarly, people choose addiction or particularly choose not to be addicted by using the practices, the tools, the concepts on a regular basis so they can gradually change their behavior and not be addicted. Does that make sense? I think so, but I, we, we might be trying to say the same thing and going about this differently. I see addiction as an end result of a series of choices. I think that addiction might not be on a person's mind when they make the first of a series of choices that leads them into addiction. Again, I'm talking about addiction as a pattern of behavior, a relationship that somebody forms with an involvement that that they pursue despite negative consequences and even destructive consequences. I don't think, I don't know, I, I don't play mind reader ever, but I, I would have to assume that people don't take a drug or begin a relationship thinking, I hope this turns into a destructive involvement. That's what I mean by people don't choose addiction. But if what you mean is that people make choices that lead them to that path and people can make choices away from it, then, then you and I are on the same page. Yes, yes. I think that's a good modification, Zach, that more likely people don't choose to be addicted. They sort of fall into it, but they can choose to maintain it or choose to 
do something about it. Read on it, go get help on it. Those are readily available, so it seems like it's a choice not to. Absolutely. And it's almost, there's almost an element of theft associated with trying to tell people that their addiction wasn't their doing or their fault. That's also tacitly telling a person that you fell into this and now you're here and this is where you'll stay. And right. that, that's precisely what the book is trying to overcome is that mindset that, that people don't have agency. Indeed, we, we agree with you and your work and the work of Albert Ellis preceding you that, that people do have an enormous amount of agency. Um, that's all we have. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And if I, I may, wanna... um, there's something I would like like to add. So with addiction, and when I worked with my, because um, I did a lot of essay work, substance use work, um, mm-hmm. one of the things I like to flesh out is addiction. If you're going to use the term, is is multi pronged. You got the chemical dependency, which you didn't ask for, and probably didn't see coming. You didn't say, "Hey, protein receptors recede into the cell walls, so that I have withdrawal symptoms when I don't use the drug." Right? You didn't ask for that. You also didn't ask for the encoding of the habit. Right. That ha- that happened as you kept using and using, but you did make conscious decisions. Right. So there's chemical this, dependency. This, this if, if, going on. if we're talking about drugs, you, you don't probably have a chemical dependency like we were like we might talk about them practically. Oh. If it's something like um, a, a love relationship, say, or maybe maybe a, a gambling habit. So I know I, I, I see what you're saying. It's like yeah. or maybe a maybe a, a love of dopamine hits. So, you know, <laughs> at, at the most. But no. But yeah. So. When I say addiction, broadly speaking, if there's a chemical problem in substance use, uh, that's because that's what I'm speaking of generally. Right. You, you, there is a chemical part to it. So sometimes saying the word addiction, people would think of many different things when they think of addiction. They think of the withdrawal symptoms. They think of the, the cravings they get because of that habit that says, hey, do that thing that feels good right now. And you're mm-hmm. not even consciously thinking about it. So there's a lot of, lot of, lot of, uh, a lot of things going on at once. As I said, my brain was fried, Zach, before we even got into this. <laughs> Forgive me. But, but again, as, again, as I said, I appreciate... Um, I appreciate uh, your approach here. Now, before I go any further, this is the REBT advocates after all. And you mentioned Albert Ellis in your last little talk there. What, what, what does REBT have to do with outgrowing addiction? Well, REBT is, uh, now I'm really preaching to the choir. It's, um, we are under no illusion. First of all, I'm, I'm a young fellow. I'm in my 30s. Stanton uh, knew Albert Ellis as, as Michael did. And um, we understand that a lot of the cognitive therapies and the cognitive behavior therapies that people talk about today and that have become mainstream all began with RABT and Albert Ellis. I don't think you could probably link it back to anything uh, further back in history than that. And so what we, one of the things we say in the book is that personal agency is going to have to be at the forefront of a person's maturing out of an addiction. First of all, actually, we explain what is very clear in the, the government's own data, but also psychological data, the literature is extremely clear that people, if we're talking about drugs, people who do drugs of all kinds, about 80 to 90% of them don't become addicted to them. They, they use them without too many problems in their lives that they would be called addicted. And of the people who do, about 80 to 90% of those people grow out of their addictions. And so what we were asking is, wow, that's, that's really a majority of people who do drugs and even who have become addicted to them that wind up maturing out of their problems because they find channels of life that are worth pursuing. That, that leads to two questions. One is, what is that enormous group? What's going on with that group that leads them to maturing out of their addictions? And what's going on with that minority of people who don't seem to be flourishing that we could do? What can we do to help them? And a lot of that comes back to um, personal agency and being able to frame, you know, think about the world as, as, a, as a 
a playground, uh, you know, a place to experience rather than a than a place people are captured. So what REBT has to do with the with the book, as I think your initial question was, is that people need to be able to be told that not only are they not diseased, but there is a way to there are building blocks to understanding oneself and the world around them and their place in the world around them. And we believe that that is the beginning of the avenue out of addictions. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Very good. Um, uh, as far as uh, growing out of addictions, I wonder if you uh, see, see things similarly as I, as far as food goes, it seems to me that the addiction to certain foods mainly sugar, salt, fat, protein, and refined carbohydrates is the most common addiction people have and uh, the most difficult for people to get over. And uh, in many cases, it doesn't seem to be uh, something that they outgrow. Uh, Do you have thoughts about that, Zach? We don't pinpoint research on whether people outgrow food addictions or not as much as we do with things like drugs. And for, for the reasons I think you're alluding to, that food is ubiquitous. Drugs are too, but food really is. There's no abstaining from food in any practical way. It's everywhere. I actually think that love relationships are probably the most difficult addiction to quit. And then we run into the same problem that you can't abstain from human beings, generally speaking. Well, yeah. actually... Yeah. Actually, uh, in terms of food, is ubiquitous, but so is drink ubiquitous. We tell people have eight glasses of water a day. So in order to get over your alcohol addiction, it doesn't mean abstaining from drink. It just means abstaining from a certain kind of drink. That's and true. in order to get over your food addiction, it doesn't mean abstaining from food. It means abstaining from certain types of food. So I think that there's a very close parallel there. Um, yeah, you can, you can abstain from any specific thing insofar as it's not something that you require to stay alive. While we're on yeah. the topic of absta- abstinence, what, what is, what is out, um, outgrowing addictions, uh, position on abstinence? Well, we don't have a position on, on abstinence. We, we're trying to explain what some dominant models are and ideas about the systems that people put on other people to say that this is what you must do. And what we're saying is that individuals need to be able to make their own decisions. You can't, there is absolutely no, you're not going to convince a person to be motivated about something that they're not. You could be pretty persuasive maybe, but you can't tell a person that if there's something that they are, that they believe is important in their lives, you can't change their belief just by telling them that they shouldn't believe it. That's, that, that's our idea. So we don't really have a stance. If people want to use something or not use something, that's their prerogative. But we're trying to explain the full range of human agency. And so that, that, that's where we lay. So we don't take a position. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Zach, before time gets away from us, I did want to say that uh, I highly recommend the book. It's a very interesting, well-written, uh, engrossing book. And it has many facets facets in it, not only uh, the outgrowing addiction part, but also uh, different approaches to help you get over addictions. And also there are some very useful sections on addictions and children, which you don't see normally in addiction books. So that's uh, excellent also. So I highly recommend that you get the book. Thank you very Uh, much. One question I had 
for a while about uh, something that you mentioned about Vietnam vets mm -hmm. recovering from heroin addiction. I first came across that idea when I read Stanton Peel's Love and Addiction, where he discusses that. But uh, what is the evidence that they were addicted to heroin in Vietnam, not just using it functionally? Yeah, that's a good point. By the, the, the terms that they used then, it would be called dependent on those drugs. And so what that study actually shows is not that definitively that all of those people must have been addicted, meaning that they used this drug despite horrible consequences that came with it. We just don't know. All we know is that they were using drugs like heroin. What the study shows and what we're trying to say is that these, all of these people were using heroin regularly. And when they came back, they weren't using heroin and they seemed to be going on with decent lives. Yeah. 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 Um, I've also worked, you also uh, mentioned in the book that uh, one of the main paths to overcoming addiction is building a valued, constructive life. Hmm. Uh, yet I've worked, I'm an addiction psychologist is one of my specialties. And I work with, over the years, I've worked with many people who have constructive value lives, and yet they're addicted. So is there some kind of a contradiction there? I don't know. It sounds like you're, you are saying that there's one, but I, I think that you could have a set of values that you know that you would like to hold true in your life and still act antithetical to those values. Indeed, a value system is an important ingredient to overcoming addiction, as we say, um, but it's not the only ingredient. So I'm not sure if there's a contradiction or if maybe you have more. Yeah, no, no, I agree with you that someone could have good positive values in much of their life, but uh, people tend to compartmentalize their thinking and their acting and their abilities and their intelligence also. Uh, so, so there could be areas of their life that aren't so constructive and valuable when it comes to yeah. uh, this uh, aspect. You can go to church on Sunday and sin on Monday. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we all do. <laughs> Ask me how I know. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Could you tell us about some of you, you work, uh, one of your specialties is working with children. Could you, uh, for the parents in the audience or the children in the audience, could you give us some uh, pointers and insights about addiction in children and how to help them get over it? Um, okay, here's three things. Um, I work with kids who are probably the most downtrodden of the population of the, of, of the town that I live in. And and they, when they come to me, they have sort of a, a misguided value system. So we help to sharpen what things they think are important in their lives. That's one. That would be that would be advice is to help people stay on track with understanding what they really value and they really want, not just now, but in the medium to long term, what a flourishing life looks like. Another point would be not to demonize drugs. A lot of the kids who are using drugs are the very people we want to be reaching, but the very people that we're pushing away by talking about drugs as some sort of a demon molecule that if you do, your life is basically over. And so what I would say is to, to be receptive and understanding and compassionate about the fact that sometimes kids are going to experiment and use substances and give them a, give them a big enough playground, so to speak, to be able to explore on their own while adhering to those values. And the last thing I would say is that um, keep an open dialogue with children one way or another. And if it's not you, a parent, or you, a teacher, who is able to keep an open dialogue, make sure that there's somebody who is 
even quasi responsible and mature who they can be in contact with so that they can, as they continue to grow on their own, as is the course of life, that they'll be able to have somebody to turn to in, in times when they need it. Um, I grew up in a Jewish home and uh, during certain holidays like Passover, everyone had some wine. And supposedly, you might know more about this than I do, uh, Jews uh, have a low rate of alcohol addiction. And one of the reasons given is that uh, they experience it as, uh, as, in, as a child and it's not demonized. Um, so I was wondering if there's anything to be said for uh, smoking some weed with your kids or having some alcohol with your kids or uh, things like that to help them just see that it's a natural thing in life, but uh, nothing forbidden that they're going to look at as a forbidden fruit that they have to do. Yeah, I don't see that as inherently bad. So um, I can imagine some scenarios where smoking marijuana with a kid who's not even the legal age to smoke it or drinking wine while breaking bread with a kid who's not old enough, legally speaking, to drink it. I could see a lot of situations where that would be beneficial because it allows people to have to drink and to use marijuana in the context of uh, family and understanding. And so that when they go out into the world, that they're able to make sense of this thing and they're not exploring it for the first time with people who may or may not share their sense of values and what's important or, or what's safe or something like that. Um, I can imagine situations in which that would be, that could be destructive and harmful. So it all depends on the context, I suppose. Yeah. What would be a, a situation or example of the latter? Well, I think that, the important part of it is not that so you were getting kids drinking in early age, which I have no problem with. And, and you may know Stanton has absolutely no problem with even encourages for some people. The, the an example of the latter where it, it could be destructive is if the drinking and the smoking is in a context of using it destructively without good guidance by somebody who's maybe more mature and a role model. So I'm not going to throw out that scenario either, even though I'm, Certainly, I'm certainly in favor of a more laissez-faire system and being able to parent that way. Uh, I wouldn't throw out the, the possibility that a parent uh, doing so could do so in more or less harmful or more and less beneficial ways. Yeah, perhaps we should look at the um, surrounding culture and what, uh, you know, what behaviors and what attitudes and, and what, uh, what substance practices are appropriate for the culture that surrounds you that will prepare you for properly inculcating yourself into the culture and succeeding in your chosen nation or society. I know uh, my Bulgarian uh, uh, theater teacher, uh, hey, drinking wine was a thing, and she was doing it since uh, an early age too, but she was, it was very pro-social at the time. She didn't have any addictive problems. Um, she could drink me under the table, but that, that was a different story. Um, <laughs> but yeah, again, but that may not be appropriate for you know a typical WASP family in Virginia right? That might not work. Hey, just yeah. take a look around parents. You, you know, <laughs> whatever you teach your kids, it's how are they going to package that and take it with them into the rest of culture? I think is what you're saying. And, and I couldn't agree more if that's what you mean. Yeah. 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 Okay. Very good. Well, I want to thank you again, Zach Rhodes for uh, your great book, Outgrowing Addiction with Stanton Peel. And uh, I greatly enjoyed the interview and learned some things here. Uh, is there any final thing you'd like to say, Zach, about how people can get in touch with you about your book or anything along those lines? Um, they might just go to outgoingaddiction.com. 
or uh, finding me at, at the, anyone can email me anytime. And I'm very responsive to email at social exchange podcast at gmail.com. And I thank you also, Michael, and thank you to Thomas for the, for the opportunity to be talking with you today. Yeah, thanks for joining us. And if you enjoyed this interview, please comment below, give us a like, and subscribe to the REBT Advocates to stay on the rational side of life. 